Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning. If you're new, my name is Dave. It's my privilege to serve here as lead pastor, and uh, I want to start my message this morning just by reminding you of the series we're in, Life on Life Ministry. The idea of one person making a spiritual investment in another person, and that's how the Christian movement spreads and deepens in people's lives. So I'll start with a little story. Um, I, I consider myself a pretty decent ping pong player. And uh, I mean, I could take most of you right now, <laughs> crush you. I, and you know, like I played for years, we had a table growing up. And I built my confidence thrashing lesser players like Steve Moon. Um, I, sorry, Steve, I, I couldn't resist. I couldn't. He beat me the last time we played, so I just had to get that in there. But then I met Derek Chang. <clears throat> you know, it's not a big deal. We went to his house. He had a table. He invited us to play. And after the first hit, I knew I had made a terrible mistake. Um, Maybe the motorized robotic practice hopper should have been some kind of a tip-off to me, but this dude is kind of serious about ping-pong, okay? And when we played, you know that feeling when you're used to doing something, you get a little confidence, and then you are with somebody at a whole other level, and you realize, oh dear, everything that I thought I could do is not enough for this new context, that what used to fly is insufficient. I think a lot of people find that when they go from high school to college. A lot of people find that when they go from singleness to married life. What I think is that a lot of us had profound experiences with Jesus when we were younger. That's why we bent our knees before him, accepted him as Savior. And many of us, when we were young, we really had a deep real, significant experience with Jesus. And a lot of us, we've been coasting on the faith of our childhood for a very long time, believing that the the Jesus I came to know in childhood is sufficient for the weight of my life as an adult. But I think many of us, if we're honest, are finding that adulthood, things like marriage and parenthood and serious illness and financial crisis and family breakdowns and all these things the loss of businesses, these are weighty things. And the faith that got us through the challenge of daily quiet time, the breakup of a girlfriend, and I got a bad grade on a, a quiz, like those things are significant, but the, the faith of our childhood is just not enough to bear the weight of the life we're being called to live today. And so I think, just like I felt facing Derek and Ping Pong, a lot of us are staring down the barrel of life and realizing that what I call this relationship with God is but an echo of something tremendous that happened in my youth, but that it's been a really long time since that fire was raging, rekindled in my heart. I don't want to say that's true of everyone, but if it's true of you, I want to ask you not to tune out during this message but to give God and his word your full attention. Because I believe that God's answer to that experience is not to go down without a fight. To give God the gift 
the offering of intentionality, of commitment, of intensity, as you say that I want to make a priority out of growing in my faith. Title of the message is Spiritual Training. Spiritual Training comes from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 to 10. Here's what the passage says. This is Paul writing to his spiritual son, Timothy, giving him advice on how to be a good pastor, a good spiritual leader. And he says, having just spoken about doctrinal error, heresy, and saying this is the real truth about the gospel. And he says, if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. That is why we labor and strive because we have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all people and especially of those who believe. You'll recall that um, Paul had left Timothy behind in Ephesus to lead a broken church through the aftermath of chaos, damage created when false teachers began spreading poisonous ideas in the church. And if you engage in spiritual leadership for even a little while, one of the things you'll learn very quickly is that the biggest obstacle to spiritual health is bad ideas, wrong beliefs. I found in my life that just having the seed of a wrong way of thinking is like prison bars and iron shackles around people's wrists. People are trapped not because... Physical things keep them in bondage, but because ideas, attitudes, beliefs keep them in bondage. I see it again and again, and they're paying the full price of what they do in response to bad ideas, wrong beliefs. I'm going to tell you right now that the things you are most stuck in, the things most broken in your life, got that way largely because somewhere along the way, you or someone close to you began to eat a diet of lies began to believe things that are not true at all, but had the ring of truth, scratched an itch you were feeling, and you accepted it and believed it to be true, and it has taken a huge toll on your life and on the people around you. Paul was saying the ministry for Timothy in Ephesus would be no joke. It was going to be one of the greatest challenges of his life. And so he's saying to him, don't try to waltz into this, with maintenance faith, everyday faith, the kind of faith that keeps you waking up, catching the bus, going to work in the morning, the life you're about to live now is not that kind of life at all. But the heat is about to get turned up, and if you don't get stronger, you will not prevail at the end of this trial. And so he uses the imagery of physical training as an analogy to the way that people ought to approach spiritual growth. You know, in every other endeavor of our lives, it's instinctive. If you want to get better, get serious. You want to get A's, study. There's no shortcut, right? If you want to get A's, you can't dress the part and spend a lot of time physically in a library. You have to actually study. 
If you want to make money, you got to work hard to make some good choices. If you want to get fit, you got to hit the gym. But when it comes to spiritual life, I'm amazed how often we take a very passive approach. I'm waiting for God to grab me. I'm waiting to fall in love again. And in every other endeavor, we ride hard after these things. But in spiritual growth, we sort of wait for God to mug us with revival. And what Paul is saying is that is an error. That's the wrong way to try to grow spiritually. If you are not okay with where you are in your faith, the solution is not to wait passively, but to enter into a time of training. Now, don't get the wrong message. Your training by itself won't make you stronger in the faith. But a lack of training will guarantee stagnancy. If you're not intentional about fighting for your faith, your faith simply will not grow. God's grace and mercy may wash over you, but you won't get stronger. And so if we take the analogy of physical training, and I think it's, it, these elements are actually found in this text, there are two basic elements of all training, if you think about it. And if we begin with the physical training, the first part is nutrition, and the second part is exercise. <clears throat> Would you agree with me? Two key elements of training are nutrition and exercise. And your physical state very often is a visible reflection of those two things, your nutrition and your exercise. Now, obviously, at the root of all that are heart and spiritual issues that drive it, identity issues. But at a physical level, that's how we train. And so Paul breaks it down this way. He says, let's first deal with this idea of spiritual nutrition. You can be as active as you want, but if you don't eat enough, if you eat too much, if you eat garbage, all the exercise in the world cannot produce health and fitness because so much of the building blocks of your health are what you're putting into the system that become your flesh and blood and bone. And so he says, if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, in other words, if you teach sound doctrine, the truth of the, God, of the gospel of God's word, then you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus. And what he's saying is, Timothy, don't you know that you have been nourished and are continuing to be nourished by the truths of this faith? And as you share it, you will, be continued to, you will continue to be nourished by it. That word nourish is very important. What he's saying is, God's word is not just informing us, it is at some supernatural level nourishing us. It's providing something that is critical to growth and strength. And in order to get the benefit of God's word, it's not enough just to open your mouth, chew and swallow. That's not enough. I think for a lot of people, it's like they have celiac disease, right? They can eat but there's an ingredient in that food they just ate that troubles them. They can't absorb it. They can't draw nutrition from it, and they will reject it. And I think unless our hearts are in the right state, you can read the book over and over, and absolutely nothing will happen. Some of us have been in that state for years. We dutifully read the book, and like within three seconds, and then the Lord says, and you cannot seem to stay awake with the Bible. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but... Some of you are like, oh, he's, he's got a, a camera in our house. He's doing surveillance on us. That was my experience for a really long period in my Christian journey. I could not seem to stay awake 
reading God's word. And what I realize is if you take it as a book and just read and read and read, it's simply not enough to draw the benefit. When he says nourishment, what he's saying is you can't just eat it. You've got to digest it. You've got to absorb it. You have to receive it into yourself. Accept it. You can read it, understand it, agree with it, memorize it. But until you absorb it deeply, receive it into yourself, it will not have its intended benefit in your life. And the proof that we've accepted the word we've read is that somehow obedience, a life aligned with what we believe, starts to take shape. Can you imagine if, you're, if somebody came up to you and said, dude, I just attended this seminar. I didn't realize how bad smoking is for you. They showed us these lungs that taken out of a cadaver. black. It was like the charcoal at the bottom of your grill. They were talking about all the carcinogenic things and all the poisons in there. It's so bad for you. You smoke, don't you? Yeah. You can give it up? No, but I mean, man, I'm so well informed as to how dangerous and deadly this habit is. Do you realize the shortcoming of that attitude? To be so well informed, so alarmed, so concerned, and yet at the end of the day, nothing changes. You're better informed and yet still dying. And what Paul says is, if you take that approach to Scripture, no nourishment will come to your soul. The only way to draw nourishment from God's Word is to read it, to accept it in your heart and mind, and then as proof of the acceptance, change the way your life looks in alignment with what you just accepted. That's the proof that you have not just eaten, but digested it. In verse 7, Paul points out that um, the key, what's happening here? Okay, I got it. There we go. All right. So the key, the, the main motive for training is to attain something called godliness. We train spiritually towards the end of something called godliness. It's important when you train that you're very honest and clear about your goals. If you're training for strength, you've got to train a certain way. If you're training for endurance, you've got to train a certain way. If you're training for mirror muscles just to look really hot and have not actually rely on those muscles for work, you've got to train a certain way. Do you see that training requires a clear picture of your goals? And what he says is the real goal of our spiritual training is what we refer to as godliness. Now, you can make that word mean a lot of things, but it's very important we understand what the Bible means when it speaks of the word godliness. Among other things, the word godliness has a very specific sense in Scripture. And interestingly, a a strange source of insight on this is how the secular writers and philosophers of Paul's time were using this same word. Because it wasn't just a religious word in the Christian sense, it was a word used in society more broadly. Those who follow the philosophy of Plato defined godliness, this word, Eusebia, as right conduct in regard to the gods. The Stoics, you you know the Stoic philosophies, just no feeling, no emotion, like Mr. Spock would have been a Stoic. Uh, Don't press me too far on that, but you know. And they defined godliness as knowledge of how God should be worshipped. Xenophon, one of the leading followers of Socrates, used the word and defined it this way, it's being wise concerning the gods. 
really what the secular philosophers were saying is godliness at the root is about protocol and relational posture. It's about saying that when I encounter a being that I think is God, my posture, my attitude, the way I see myself in relation to that being speaks volumes. And that if I don't get that part right, I can become a master of all the rest of the religious system and rules and I'll get nowhere because fundamentally at the root of it, spirituality begins with a right view of God, a right posture towards Him. I think, in my experience as a pastor, this is borne out to be true. That the spiritual problems in most people's lives can be traced back fundamentally to an error that took place somewhere in their very basic view about who God is. That they weren't sidetracked because life got hard or because somebody stabbed them in the back. They, they were derailed because somewhere along the way those stri- trials and strains led them to believe a lie about God himself and that lie about God destroyed their ability to find hope in him. If you can't turn to God in your struggles, you have nothing left. God is always worthy of our trust and our faith in struggles, but if we lose our ability to see him this way, that fundamental error of misreading who God is destroys everything else. Let me give you a a more um, concrete example of how this works. There are certain things true about God regardless of what's going on in your life and my life. These are just things like, for example... I am Korean-American, okay? There's nothing I can do about that. There were days in my life when I wished I could, but such as it is, that's my ethnicity. If I'm laid off, I'm still Korean-American. If I get married or if I'm single, I'm still Korean-American. If I'm wealthy or poor, I'm still Korean-American. The rise and fall of my circumstances has nothing to do with this enduring truth about who I actually am. And there are truths like that about God which are unassailable, which are presumed to be true regardless of our circumstances. Do you, are you getting that? So here's one example. God is good. That's just going to be true no matter what is going on in the world, in your life, in your family. God is good. How about this? God loves us. He doesn't love me more yesterday and a little less today. He doesn't love me more than he loves you. He loves us always. There isn't a day or a moment, a millisecond of your life where that statement isn't true. Here's another one. God is in control. Wow, that's a shocker because it doesn't seem like anybody's in control. Well, yeah, it seems like that in your life. But can you imagine us making strong declarations about the God of the universe from the starting point of our little story? You can say it doesn't feel like anyone's in control of my life, but it's a huge leap to suddenly say God is no longer in control. So do you realize it's not like it's like this, okay? I understand that hardship produces doubt. That's not a sin. The error comes when we try to process our doubts by saying and believing things that are lies about God himself. These statements cannot be called into question, but if you begin by calling them into question, here's the way your processing will look. Um, My life is going to hell in a handbasket. What a 
great American expression. It's falling apart. My whole life is poop right now. It's bad. So I begin to call into question, is God good? Well, let's see. Let me look at my life and try to answer the question, is God good? Oh, man, if I'm looking at my life, nobody's good. I look at my life and ask, does God love me? Does it feel like today God loves me? Do you realize if you can call these things into question, you will start answering them by looking at your life. But the way we're meant to do it is to assume that these enduring truths are always true and they anchor us as our starting point and we say, God is good. He loves me. He is in control at this moment and yet my life is in chaos How do I reconcile these things? What should I pray now? How can I understand my suffering in light of the fact that even now, God loves me, and so I press forward? Do you realize the different effect it will have on our souls if we stop calling these things into question? That's what godliness is. Is that the starting point of my life is a right posture and attitude towards God. That fundamentally, I believe about God rightly. That if there is God and there is me, I have no confusion how God is different from me. How I cannot contain and define the God of the universe through the lens of my story alone. Your story matters, but it's not big enough to tell anybody what God is like. Completely. Do you see that? And so this is what Paul is aiming at when he refers to godliness. Is at the start of it, we're training so that we think about God rightly in all circumstances. That's why it matters what we eat. Because you don't get this kind of certainty about God, this right relational posture, if Your diet, spiritually and philosophically, are voices other than God's. If the voice of God is not the dominant voice in your life, I guarantee you at some point, you will start to believe wrong things about this God. Let me put it another way. If I go to Portillo's today, and have a side salad and eat the whole chocolate cake. I can argue with anybody. I don't know why I feel so sick. I ate a salad today. Yeah, you ate a salad, a salad, and you ate a whole cake. Of those things you just ate, which one will have a greater impact on your well-being, on the way you feel? Yeah, but I ate a salad. Your salad was window dressing. It was a token gesture. But the real nutrition, the real nourishment your body is trying to draw is from that whole cake. And that's the way it works. Some of us listen to every voice but God's. And then on Sunday, we hear 45 minutes of a middle-aged Korean man ranting about this God. Okay, God's word, it's, it's in there. Is it any wonder then That when your life is turned upside down and your feelings are raging, your emotions are out of control, and you're trying to find solid ground to stand on, and you're digging deep into your soul, what voice is true? Where is up? What is right? What is wrong? Where will your soul take you? It will take you to the well that is most filled. Our nutrition spiritually matters because that's where the soul goes to draw when it desperately needs to draw. 
That's why Jesus said, man shall not live just on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's not just information for our minds, but it is nourishment for the soul. It is the fuel that God will use to bring us through our lives to his glory. Let me give you the second thing, the element of spiritual training, and that is spiritual exercise. Now, many of you know our daughter Zoe is a gymnast. Okay? Here's a picture of her doing a move called the Sasson. <clears throat> Pretty good job, I think. She, she's, she caught some serious air. Legs are straight, toes pointed. I couldn't in a million years do that without ripping lots of things. And yet I tried. <clears throat> okay? And uh, I, I don't know. Do you, do you see any difference between her, Sison, and my... I, I didn't even catch any air. Look at... I'm, I'm like... I've got like a one-inch vertical right now. That's just... That's my life today. Now, beyond the obvious ugliness differential, why is it that Zoe can do that and I can do this? And I'm saying this is like the eighth take, I think. This is like the best photo that our friend caught... <laughs> of me doing this. The difference is, Zoe is in the gym training for gymnastics 14 hours a week. It's like a part-time job. I mean, she is at the gym almost more than she's at home after school. She works until she... This dainty little girl has like a dock worker's hands. If you ever shake her hand, you're like, ow! It's like she has leprosy on the hand because it's just so roughed up and calloused. Because she works it and works it and works it until her body obeys her will. I very obviously do not do such work. And I guess that's kind of the point of Paul using this illustration of training. What he's saying is, you cannot get a result without the work. Nothing great in life is attained passively. It's interesting that the word training that occurs over and over and over in this text is the Greek word gymnazo, from which we derive the English word gymnastics and gymnasium. It's, it's no accident. What he's really talking about is the exact same mindset of people who go to the gym. And so our analogy of spiritual and physical training is not off base. There are great parallels that exist between those two endeavors. I don't want to offer you a belabored catalog of all the forms and, and, and methodologies of spiritual training and exercise, but what I want to emphasize is the th- same thing that Paul is emphasizing If you don't get serious and committed about this, nothing will happen. Just like physical training, buying spandex clothing and a gym membership doesn't produce physical health. Actually using those things. And I'm not talking about anybody else. My lifetime fitness card was pristine. I literally, the last time I was a lifetime member, I was a member for six months. I only swiped the card the day I went in to get my photo taken. I mean, how pathetic is that? What's interesting is, on January 1st, it's the people not at the gym who are really the most committed to fitness. 
Because they know that the New Year's Eve resolution people are going to flood the gym and take up all the machines. They're like, I'm not going to deal with the hassle. Let's let all of them work this out of their system. And the real committed fitness people come back January 3rd. Because by then, all 80,000 of those other people have left. They quit. There's a lot of things we wish we were good at. But we're not. Because we romanticize them. We fantasize about them, but we never actually pursue them. But I'll bet you every one of us in this room has at least something that we're good at, better than the average bear, at least middling to poor. You know, but like something that I, yeah, I could do that. I know how to do this, and I know how to do it well enough that I might even be able to teach someone else how to do it or help them up their level. Just think for a second. Do you have something like that, that you have attained a level of expertise An advanced level. Anybody want to shout one out? Any, anybody want to take a risk? That you're pretty good at. Nobody? I pastor a mediocre church here. Nobody's good at it. Well, okay. All right. So, so you're very good at modesty. But I know that most of us have something that, that we're good at. And I want you to think about what that thing is. This thing that you know backwards and forwards. There are people who can recite every single word of certain movies. There are people who can draw something they just saw from memory. There are people who can watch a person dance one time and follow their exact moves. Whereas like me, I can have a choreographer bring me through it 80,000 times. I'm like, no, it doesn't work. I can't do it. So you probably have something you can do very well. And I will tell you right now, I bet money on this, this thing you do well, you work really hard at it over a long period of time. You don't get good at anything just by having flashes of connection with it. January 1 through 3, you just intensely pursue it and drop it the rest of the year, and voila, you're an expert somehow. It doesn't happen. And the key to spiritual exercise is not the methodology, it's not the particular strategy, it's simply this. If you don't set your heart and mind to pursue it with all priority and urgency, nothing will change. The key component to any training is the decision to pursue it with full commitment. Without that rudimentary thing, that basic thing, who cares if we discuss, you know, I could tell you so many exercises. I, I follow this religiously online. I am an expert student of high intensity interval training. I am not an enthusiastic practitioner of HIIT, but man, I could tell you all about it. The change that has to happen in my life is I've got to stop being so knowledgeable about interval training. And I've got to actually start doing it. Do you see what we're saying is that the most important part of any training regimen is the all-out commitment to make this a priority and to chase it with everything you've got. What Paul says is this training towards godliness, towards a right relationship and posture towards God, it is the most valuable training you can pursue in your life. It doesn't in any way lower the value and importance of other trainings, but what it says is if you've got to choose one, choose the training that will equip you best for all of life. If you get everything else right and you are a billionaire and you have the the 
body of a god or goddess. You have a great career, but your relationship with God is all in chaos. Then as a follower of Christ, none of those other successes will be able to mask the brokenness of your spiritual death. And so he says, it is worth pursuing, and it's worth pursuing as the greatest priority of our lives. This time of year is overwhelming because there's so many ways we want to improve ourselves. But can I just give you a focused lens for a moment? If you've got to start somewhere in 2016, start here. Stop dabbling in your relationship with God and make up your mind to pursue it with diligence. I know we come to church and all that, but I, I'm just trying to think, when's the last time I just went for it, like all out, roll up my sleeves? I'm going to grow in this relationship with God this year. I'm going to sacrifice other things and chase it as my greatest goal. And I've got to say, I'm being very inspired this year to answer that call from God and make it my highest priority this year. I hope you're not stumbled that your pastor is like telling you, this year I decided to make spiritual growth my priority. But I'm trying to be honest with you. I don't think it's my priority all the time. I think sometimes I make a greater priority trying to be a good husband or a good dad or a good pastor. This year, I want to be a good follower of my Savior. It's my heart. And what Paul says is, it's so worthy a goal that I'm willing to labor and strive. I pull out a lot of Greek in this sermon. I don't typically try to do that, but I'm doing it because these Greek words are worth knowing. That word we translate labor is a Greek word, kopiao, and here's what it means. It's working at something to the point of weariness and exhaustion. How many of you lift weights at least semi-regularly? So you know that one of the schools of thought is it's better for you to lift to exhaustion rather than going, I'll do 10 reps and then stop. They say, just do it until you're like, and you can't get it up. And then that's it. You stop and that's your set. And I've tried that a number of times. and I found that it actually is very effective when you work at something to the point of exhaustion. And I think a lot of us are approaching life that way in other arenas. Would you agree? A lot of us are working at our jobs, our careers, to the point of exhaustion. Even though our body is saying, drop it, watch a movie, hang out with the family, just relax a little, our ambition is saying, yeah, but if I do that, I, I lose ground. I give up market share. I let Joe in accounting have a better shot at the, at the uh, uh, promotion than me. And so we work hard at it to the point of exhaustion. Some of us are working our bodies that way. But what he's saying is the pursuit of a deeper relationship with Christ is so worthy a goal, it's worth pursuing to the point of exhaustion. And I was trying to think, when is the last time I can recall pursuing Christ in this manner? With such all-out commitment, I was exhausted. That word strive, you'll recognize this Greek right away. It's the Greek word agonizomai from which we get the English word agony. It is engaging in a painful struggle without quitting. How many of you work out regularly, we're told by your trainer, the minute you feel uncomfortable, stop. 
Oh, that hurts to stop then. Stop. <laughs> what do most trainers get paid for? They get paid to yell at you right at the point where the pain makes you want to stop you. You was, give me one more, you could do it. You're like, you're a very bad person. But you're paying the money to tell you that pain is just weakness leaving the body. (laughs) Right? Isn't that what we pay them for? The whole idea is, in all training, if you cannot break through the barrier of pain, if that's the cost that you're not willing to pay, That's the ceiling for your growth. I've experienced this numerous times where I'm studying for a sermon and I'm unpacking one of the more scholarly commentaries and people are waiting to meet with me and I've got all these other things i got to do and everything in me is screaming, who's going to know the difference in the congregation? Whether I chase down the real meaning of this one part of the text, which is not even going to make it into the sermon. Who cares? Just like those obsessive filmmakers who comb every hair on the mane of the pony who's like 100 feet in the background of the shot. You're like, why? Because I'll know. Because it matters. And you know, like, I'm so tempted at that moment where I'm like, I don't want to do this. It's complicated. I have to read like six other sources to understand something I'm not even going to teach. What's the point? Let me save myself a lot of trouble. And yet, I can testify by God's grace and for His glory only I've learned now not to give in to that temptation. And it's so annoying. (laughs) Working so hard at learning things that I don't get to showcase in public. But in the end, the amazing thing is, I'm still growing through it. God is doing something in me, even through the commitments no one else sees. Because at the end, it speaks to who I'm becoming, not who I'm showing the world that I am. Do you get that picture? It's all those little cheats we do in secret that define ultimately who we are. And if you quit every time there's pain, when you say, I would, but oh no, I can't. That moment is defining you. That moment, that decision is going to define you. And what he says is, if it matters for you to know Christ... It matters enough to be worth pressing through the pain and the burn. Let me close this message by sharing the story of a man named Nelson Bell. That picture will give it away who he's associated with. Nelson Bell is the father-in-law of Billy Graham. Of course, the father then of Billy Graham's wife, Ruth Bell. From 1916 to 1941, Nelson Bell served as a medical missionary in China, and he oversaw the operation of a 400-bed hospital for many seasons all by himself. I don't know if you know anything about medicine, but running a 400-bed hospital by yourself is studly. (laughs) It's massive. And yet, in spite of that workload... It was his regular practice to wake up every single day, no matter what, at the ungodly but very godly hour of 4.30 a.m. And he spent every single day, two to three hours a day, soaking his heart and mind in the word of God and reflecting on what God was teaching him. 
Anyone who knew him was deeply affected by this man. And the repeated comment was, there is a peace about Nelson and a deep abiding wisdom in him that we are, we, it's rare to see in anybody else. When I'm scared, when I'm confused, when I'm in shock, I run to Nelson because he helps me see Christ. When I don't know what to do, he often gives me counsel that feels like the truth and wisdom of God himself. He made it seem effortless, but that wisdom and peace was built on the foundation of a lifetime's practice of training to pursue the nourishing word of God in private every day for hours. That pattern in his life was not lost on his children. And a roommate of Ruth Bell's, when she was studying as a student at Wheaton College, testified that Annoyingly, her roommate Ruth every morning woke up at 4.30 and read her Bible and prayed for like two hours a day. What a beautiful legacy to leave. That the things she admired most in her father, she understood where they came from. And as she emulated his training regimen, she also began to emulate his depth of character, his unshakable peace, and his godly wisdom. So if you're wondering where to start in 2016, let me encourage you, invite you, start here. Begin with a single-minded commitment to eat the nourishing words of Scripture, the Word of God Himself. Not the chattering voices of others, not even Christian books or Chris Tomlin songs. Those are good things, but go straight to the Word of God and soak your heart and mind it. I think you will be amazed what happens when you go to the word of God directly with great commitment. And you don't just eat it, but you receive it in prayer. You digest it. I finished with a saying that I heard in college that I love. A Bible that's tore up belongs to a, a life that isn't. A Bible that looks this jacked up belongs to a person whose soul is very, very healthy. Now, we don't know that anymore because all our Bibles are on electronic devices, but maybe this year, try something different. Go to an antique store and buy a Bible book. Can't afford that. Next time someone stays at a hotel, have them steal the Gideon Bible. It's okay. It's, it's there for you to steal. My dad's a Gideon. <clears throat> he strongly encourages the theft of Gideon Bibles. <clears throat> Get your hands on a Bible. And we sent out an email about a Bible reading plan with some tremendous videos that really open up the Word of God to you. It's not too late to dive in. The only question is, will it be a crowning priority of your life this year? I received that invitation and challenge along with the rest of you, Jeannie and I had a very profound conversation last night about our own spiritual well-being, our own spiritual health, and I am charged up, and I am excited to grow in Christ this year. Will you join me in that? Let's pray together. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. 
Thanks for listening.